midst of a series on 1 Peter, and um, I believe you did the same thing last week where you skipped a ch- chapter 5, right? So, so um, because of Ordination Sunday, we fast forward to chapter 5, um, where it talks about being subject to elders, and but more specifically, talk to the elders of what church authority looked like. Now we're going back to chapter 3, where we left off, verses 13 through 17, which is really the beginning of uh, Peter's teaching on suffering, and uh, that, that um, this section will go on uh, for a few weeks now. It'll be an extended, uh, it's a really major theme in the book of First Peter. So follow along here on page 7. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Word of the Lord. Lord, we humbly now um, bring ourselves to the Word and, and all of our um, issues and concerns and cares and struggles. Uh, we submit them all to the teaching and instruction of your inspired Scripture. Uh, Lord, we do on this day, um, we do want to pause and give thanks uh, for mothers, um, this high, noble, Uh, culture-changing, generational, um, changing calling of motherhood, Lord. And we praise you um, for the mothers that are here. Um, We praise you for the ways you have used our own mothers. And uh, Lord, specifically, I I do pray for the moms here that you would give them uh, grace and strength, um, perseverance, uh, self-sacrifice, love and firmness, everything they need to parent well. Lord, we also just want to pause and um, pray for those struggling um, in ways that are elevated on a day like today. We pray for the ladies here um, who long to be moms um, and yet struggle in their singleness, Lord, who, who um, long to be married and, and have kids. And uh, for whatever reason, that's not where your providence has them. And uh, Lord, I just I pray that as they uh, struggle with that, that they would lift their eyes to you and uh, find their comfort and hope and uh, strength and all that they need. And uh, Lord, they turn to the church community and uh, find, find uh, love and family here. Lord, I pray for um, if there are any here struggling with infertility. Uh, God, the often overlooked and unspoken, uh, but deeply painful uh, suffering of infertility, Lord, I, I pray that they would as well trust you with their longings, present their um, desires to you, and trust um, that you are a good father that knows how to care. And uh, Lord, I dare pray that you would uh, grant them children, um, that you, in what, whatever way you see fit, Lord, that you would give them the desires of their heart. Lord, I pray for um, moms here who live in regret, um, who wish they could start over, 
um, in parenting and um, wish that they did things differently, Lord. I pray that uh, they would entrust their failures to your grace and know that you are enough to cover over uh, their failures. Um, Lord, that they would not live in a perpetual regret and uh, self-loathing. Um, Lord, I pray against mom guilt and, and, and the just incessant competition in our culture um, that seems so elevated by social media. Lord, um, just this, this epidemic of guilt and motherhood, which is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would free, free them from that. And, uh, Lord, that they would be able to delight in their calling, delight in their children, and ultimately delight in you. Lord, as we turn to our passage, I pray that you would help us to suffer well as Christians. Teach us what this means. We need this so badly. Uh, so, so come and, and teach your people uh, through your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, uh, so like I said, most uh, we've spent... Um, many weeks dwelling on Peter's call uh, for exiles in the world to live in every way uh, in submission throughout their time of exile. And in the final passage on submission, uh, Peter admits that this expectation of submission, of submissive, humble, submissive exiles, will inevitably lead to um, hardship for exiles, that it is a, it is a fearful and vulnerable thing uh, to submit because it opens you up uh, to um, suffering at the hands of this world. And this is why his teaching will now transition into the other main theme of 1 Peter, which is suffering. Now, it's important from the outset to understand that 1 Peter addresses a particular type of suffering, specifically persecution for following Jesus Christ. Suffering comes to us in many different forms. Um, there is suffering due to just life in a uh, broken, fallen world. Uh, things like uh, disasters and disease that befall us. There is suffering due to our own sinful choices. Uh, the decisions we make in our life, um, we will reap what we sow, so to speak. There's suffering due to... Um, Strange, bitter providence of God that we can't understand, like I just prayed. Um, perhaps singleness or, or um, infertility. Um, there are many types of suffering, and the Bible is not silent on any of these. The Bible is a very honest book about your sufferings. But where 1 Peter is uniquely helpful is the suffering that comes to us as a result of our obedience to Jesus Christ. That if we are followers of Jesus, if we are true followers of Jesus in a world that, according to Jesus, doesn't like him, then the world will not like us. That if we are to follow Jesus, the world will treat us the way the world treated Jesus, with contempt, with scorn, with persecution. So my sermon title, How to Suffer Well, is talking specifically about the suffering of persecution. Of, uh, of mistreatment by the world for your faith. A few weeks ago, while we gathered here for worship um, this past Palm Sunday in Egypt, our brothers and sisters were gathered for worship, and uh, jihadists walked into the service, uh, shouted their praise to Allah, um, and blew themselves up. 
In total, uh, 45 Christians would die a few weeks ago. It was, it was uh, the worst um, terrorist event toward Christians in Egypt um, in a long time. Um, and this received national news and, and um, outcry from everyone, Muslims included. Um, but what didn't get reported as much was that the following day, the, the very next day, um, they decided to gather again for worship. Um, and these same Christian Christians um, in a community like this defiantly came together um, to hear from their minister, who shared a short, uh, a short devotion almost, homily, I guess you could say, entitled, A Message to Those Who Kill Us. So we want to say to those who kill us. And in this short eight-minute devotional, directed at the persecutors, the phrase, we love you, was said nine times. And the phrase, we thank you, was said 12 times. What a strange and uh, scandalous religion we practice. While the blood is barely dry, while the sanctuary lay in ruins, our brothers and sisters gather together to declare to their enemies, we love you and we thank you. Is this response to those who do you harm? It doesn't have to be bombings. I know that's not our context. In fact, verse 17 of our passage shows that Peter's actually talking more about uh, the slander, the words that we receive because of our Christian faith. How do you respond to persecution, whether it's a bombing or just shunning? from friends, co-workers, family members, whomever. What is, that is, what is your message to those who harm you? If you're anything like me, then you need to probably uh, admit that uh, you don't know how to suffer well. I was just deeply convicted by that this week. I don't feel like I know how to suffer well. We need help, and First Peter is here in the coming weeks to help us to learn how to suffer well. Today our passage is going to speak to suffering in three ways. In our fear, our response, and our motivation. Let's go through each of those briefly. What does the passage have to say to our fears and suffering? Peter begins his teaching uh, on the whole section on suffering with a rhetorical question there in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, there's a hint of sarcasm there uh, that he's using to emphasize his point. Peter is aware, uh, and the persecuted Christians are keenly aware, that there are many people to harm us. What do you mean, who is there to harm us if we do good? Where do I start? And Peter understands that. The point that he's making with this kind of sarcastic rhetorical question is that if you are harmed for your zeal for what is good then truly you cannot be harmed is the point he's making that is in the end your harm will give way to blessing echoing what Jesus promised when he said blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake in fact verse 14 sounds almost like a quote from the Sermon on the Mount which it probably was even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So the reason Peter rhetorically asks, who is there that can harm you, is because ultimately their harm will yield your blessing, which consequently means no one can actually harm you in the end. Now, what he does here is 
is move seamlessly from that greater principle, who can harm you? Because, because even if you are harmed, it will be a blessing. He moves seamlessly from that into really some practical teaching on how to suffer well. And the connection or the implication of that transition is that blessed suffering, the blessing of suffering comes about in this particular way. This is the path to a blessed suffering. In other words, suffering is certainly not intrinsically a blessing. Suffering that leads to hard-heartedness or bitterness or vengeance or self-pity, this, this would not be a blessed suffering. Um, so this is not a blanket promise that suffering equals blessings. In, instead, this is a promise that doing suffering the way I'm going to tell you to do, you will be blessed. Doing suffering this way is a blessed suffering. And that's what he's laying out for us, this pathway to a blessed suffering. The first instruction he has for us speaks to our fears. Continue on. Have no fear of them. In order to suffer well, you cannot fear those who cause your suffering. It's interesting that oftentimes the suffering is easier than the fear of suffering. Have you noticed that? What they do to you is not as torturous as what you fear they will do to you. Um, the suffering is actually not as difficult as the anxiety surrounding the suffering. In this way, those who persecute us harm us doubly. Those who slander us, malign us, betray us, harm us. They, they harm us doubly. There is the harm, and then there is the anxiety around the harm. I love that Peter here says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. For many of us, it's not necessarily all about the fear. In fact, we can maybe say, I'm not really that scared. It's the troubling that, that connects with me. It's a persistent anxiety that gnaws at the soul. Your mind can't stop thinking about it. Your, your stomach is in knots. Your, your days are distressed. Your nights are sleepless. And in this way, you allow them to harm you even while they are doing no harm to you. That is not a blessed suffering that is controlled by fear. That's a miserable suffering. So Peter says, have no fear of them. Don't even be troubled. Now we say, well, that's easy for you to say, Peter. This isn't something I can just turn off. I just can't shut down my fears. But he actually isn't asking you to turn anything off. Instead, he asks you to replace unhealthy fear with healthy fear. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but, so there's the contrast, but, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. When Peter says, honor Christ as holy, he is speaking to a healthy fear. Fear of God. Appropriate fear of God. God is holy. And you don't know fear until you stand in the presence of holiness. So when he says, in your heart regard Christ as holy, he is saying, don't fear them, fear Jesus. Which is actually almost a direct quote of Jesus himself. <laughs> don't fear them who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul. And in this way, unhealthy fear is replaced by a healthy fear of Christ. So from this perspective, suffering can actually become a great tool because it renews our fear of the Lord. It's probably the best tool, honestly. Suffering forces us either to Christ or away from Christ. 
And he's saying, let it force you into a deeper conviction of Christ as holy in your heart. Let it renew your fear of the Lord. Do not waste your suffering by fearing them, obsessing over them. Instead, let the suffering drive you to the Lord. Bring you home. Bring you to your knees. Purge you of your sins. Shatter your idols. Let it renew the holy lordship of Christ in your heart. That's what he's saying. Okay, so don't fear them. Fear Christ. But what do we do with them, right? How do we respond? Don't fear them who harm us, but what do we do with those who harm us? Well, let's look at our response. Here's the response to those who harm us. Continue on. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is a strange response. It's an often quoted verse but it's often quoted out of context. Consider in the context of suffering at the hands of others. The first thing to notice here is that this is a defending, not a confronting. It is an answering, not a demanding. What I mean by that is he says, always being prepared to make a defense, not make a confrontation, a defense, to anyone who asks. <laughs> not to demand, but to ask. Peter is, 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 is not envisioning a combative disposition towards those who harm us. Instead, you know what he's doing? He's keeping, he just won't let it die. He's just keeping right in step with his call of humble submission. We are a people who responds to the mistreatment of the world with meek disposition, yet are always prepared and ready to defend our hope when asked. And the point of the verse, the truest point of the verse, is that people should be asking. That's the truest application here. The expectation is that the way we suffer is going to lead to questions. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The goal for Christian living in an antagonistic world is that we endure the antagonism in a way that will evoke questions even from those who cause our suffering. What is with these people? Where is this peace? Where is this hope? Where is this joy coming from? Because it's a strange thing to see people suffer with hope. And so, I would say this in regard to, to our response. It's one thing, if you think the response is that you just need to be prepared to give an account for the hope that is in you, I would say this. It's one thing to be ready to make a defense. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty good at that. It's another thing to live in such a way that a defense is asked. I'm actually really bad at that. That's the truest application here. While this verse is usually used to motivate us to equip ourselves to defend our hope, the truer application is a life that suffers so well that people are asking you about your hope. Now, I would like to dwell here for a moment of application because I think we struggle with this. So here's my question. Do you suffer in such a way that the world takes notice of your hope? It seems to me that Christians tend to fail here in two ways. Either we, when we suffer, either we deny hope or we deny the suffering. And here's what I mean by that. We deny the hope with our murmuring, complaining, woe is me. Um, I can't believe this is happening to me. My feelings are hurt. Life is so hard. I'm just going to retreat into my perpetual introspection of cynicism and complain on social media. 
And in this way, nobody will ask you about the hope that is within you because they see no hope within you. You're hopeless. And the older among us are inwardly shouting, Amen. Suck it up, millennials. We are tired of your whining. But I would say this. Um, there is an equally inappropriate response that denies the suffering. The rugged toughness, self-reliant, self-sufficient, I'm so strong that nothing can get to me, never let them see me cry, heck, never even let them see me sweat, type of false strength is not suffering with hope. Because in this way, nobody will ask you about the hope that is within you because they see no need for hope within you. They think you got it. They think you're strong. They think you can't relate to their suffering. All they see is this faux bravado that apparently needs no hope. And instead, Christians are those who are brutally honest with their suffering while unwaveringly confident with their hope. We practice 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We weep. Oh, do we weep. But not as those without hope. And it is this tension that causes the world to take notice and ask. And so when they ask about the hope that is within you, when they ask about this peace, this joy that seems to transcend your circumstances in suffering, when they ask, now, finally, you get to get them. Finally, you, you get to summon your inner preacher and, and hit them with the truth. No. Peter's still relentless with this humble submission thing. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's like, is he ever going to let us get them back? To Peter, how you give an account matters just as much as the account that you are giving. He says you are to do it with gentleness, meaning literally the feel of your words is as important as the truth of your words. You could be completely true in what you say and dead wrong because of how you said it. He says you are to do it with respect, meaning the goal is to honor them, not defeat them. They are not an opponent to be defeated. They are a neighbor to be loved and honored. He says you are to do it having a good conscience. You know what that's mean? You know what I'm saying there? Um, your conscience is clear. That you've tested yourself, you've examined yourself, and you are truly suffering for righteousness' sake and not just because you're a jerk. Like the, 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 uh, the, the Christian martyr, I'm always persecuted complex. A lot of times that's just you being mean. Like this is, my conscience is clear. I'm following Jesus and that's why I'm being persecuted. It's not my sin. It's not my personality. It's not my combative nature. It's Jesus. My conscience is clear. So at the end of the day, our response is just more of the same, honestly, humble submission. Rather than retaliation, we suffer so humbly and hopeful that it causes those who do us harm to literally ask, what's with you? What is the reason for the hope that is within you? And when we give our defense, we retain our humility by doing so with gentleness, respect, and good conscience. That's a high calling. It's a difficult calling. And we're going to need motivation for that. We're going to need help for that. Um, and, and, and he transitions there. Let's, let's close with the motivation to live this out because it's tough. Admittedly so. The motivation is introduced here in verse 16 with the so that. So you know he's, he's giving you the, the outcome here. So that 
When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I love this point because it appeals to our very just and noble desire for vindication. Never think that your desire for justice, your desire to be vindicated, your desire to be defended, don't think that that's wrong in you. That is very right and true with you. Do not confuse this humble response to suffering with an indifference to justice. And do not suppose that God Himself is indifferent to your suffering. Instead, this way of suffering is a form of trust in God as your defender. I will not defend myself, but my God will. That's what Peter is promising here. He's saying, listen, you stay above reproach. You live out the humility. You live out the submission. You be gentle. You be respectful. You do this with clear conscience. But trust me, those who slander you will be put to shame. Not by you, but by your Christ. There's this subtlety to the language here that I think is very intentional. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Our good behavior is in Christ. It is in His name. It is because we are united to Him. We suffer this way because we are doing this for Jesus. And in so doing, what this means is we are trusting in Christ while we do these things. We do this for Jesus and we trust Jesus with the results. We trust Him to defend us and He will. Peter is promising that those who mistreat you shall be put to shame and they will. They will be ashamed for what they have done to you either in this life or in the judgment that is to come, either way, they will answer to your Christ and they will be utterly ashamed for what they have done. So this is very real application here, people. And it's, it's really simple. Do you have enough faith in Jesus to trust Jesus to defend you? That, that's where the rubber meets the road. Perhaps nowhere is our faith tested more than when we are forced to entrust our suffering to God. When it comes to our abuse, when it comes to our harm, when it comes to lies that are said about us, gossip that is said about us, do you have enough faith to trust that Jesus will defend you? Rather than defend, we wait upon Him to defend. Rather than control the situation, we wait upon His all-controlling providence. Rather than retaliate, we wait upon holy justice. We will never suffer well if we do not have this underlying confidence in Christ as our defender. Then there's another pragmatic motivation we see here in verse 17. He goes one more step. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is an interesting point that he's making here, but it's, it's, it's actually important to make. Essentially, it's the same. You're going to suffer, might as well suffer for doing well. He's saying suffering is inevitable and unavoidable in this fallen world. So uh, you can suffer for your evil against others and make no mistake, you will eventually reap the bitter harvest of that decision. You can suffer for your disobedience to Jesus or you can suffer for your humble submission to Jesus. You can suffer with Christ as your defender for what they have done to you, or you can suffer with Christ as your disciplinarian for what you have done to them. So, how's this for an application? Choose your suffering. Uh, contrary to the prosperity 
teaching that is taking over our Christian context. Exiles in a fallen world are not choosing between prosperity and suffering. We choose between suffering and suffering. Righteous suffering that is blessed and unrighteous suffering which is miserable. So, choose well how you will suffer. There is only one form of suffering that has been labeled by our Lord Jesus a blessed suffering, and it is the suffering for righteousness' sake. And this is the choice that Christ himself has made. At the end of the day, our motivation, as always, to suffer well is our Savior who chose to suffer well. Here here it is. How are you to respond to their persecution? The same way Jesus responded to your persecution. Shortly after the church bombings in Egypt, ISIS released a statement, owning up to it and saying this, The bill between us and Christians is very large, and they will pay it with rivers of blood from their children. And I read that and thought, oh, how the irony is crying out to them. The bill between us and God is very large, but He will pay it with rivers of blood from His child. Those Egyptians who gathered for a sermon entitled, Our Message to Those Who Kill Us, were also gathering to hear again, 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 the good news of Christ's message to those who killed Him. And it is His message to us that gives birth to our message to the world that hates us. We will respond to your persecution the way Jesus responded to ours. Let me pray. Lord, fill us with your sacrifice here. Every time we eat and drink, we proclaim your death and we need the proclamation of your death because you are calling us to go out into the world and live out this death. So we must fill ourselves first with your sacrifice on our behalf that we might go and sacrifice on behalf of the world. Lord, overwhelm us with the good news of how you responded to our persecution that we might bear witness and respond likewise to our persecution. Help us to love, Lord, as we have been loved. Through Christ we pray. Amen.